Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. This podcast is graphic and deals with mature subject matter. You're listening to True Crime Chronicles. For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson. This week, my co-host Jessica Knoll is actually on assignment for a new podcast from Vault Studios that will be launching later this summer. So, Jessica, you're in Kentucky. You've been hard at work all week. Tell us a little bit about what you've been working on. I am in Kentucky um, in a town that has been named the most beautiful small town in America. But what we're looking at, investigating, and, and uncovering are five unsolved homicides and trying to figure out if there's any connection between all these uh, murders that all happened within a span of five years, one uh, every year. All right, Jessica, we'll be telling all of our listeners when that new podcast is set to launch. In the meantime, let's get into today's story. And just a reminder, as with many of our stories, this one is graphic and not intended for young ears. It's something that you that you can't get out of your mind, especially when it happened on your watch. Cases like this, there's no way you forget this. This was a cold case. That doesn't mean it was a dead case. It's the story of a nine-year-old girl who went to school just like she always did. A fourth grader with a big smile, wavy, long brown hair. A nine-year-old who lived with her stepfather and mother in suburban St. Louis. And every day, Angie Hausman would get off the bus and walk home. And the walk home was only half a block. It's the kind of walk that most parents would feel fine about letting their child walk past the neighbors and houses she sees every day, seeing friends and people she knows. But in this story, the nine-year-old never makes it home. No one ever sees her after she gets off the bus. Angie Hausman simply vanished on November 18, 1993. It's one week before Thanksgiving in 1993 when Angie Hausman gets off that yellow school bus to head home to the duplex she lives in with her stepfather. It's like any other day, she grabs her books, steps down from the bus, and starts walking. Casey Nolan is an anchor and journalist at KSTK in St. Louis. He used to visit Angie's neighborhood when he was a kid. It's a a, a very nice little suburb of St. Louis, uh, not too far from the airport, working class. Uh, You know, the kind of place where you'd expect a kid to be able to walk home from a bus stop, no no problem. But when Angie's stepfather, Ron Bone, comes home after work, the house is empty. Well, she got off the school bus. She had four more to go to make it in the house, and she never made it. Ann Allred is a news anchor at KSDK in St. Louis. She was just a kid herself when the news broke. I remember being a kid, and anybody that lived in St. Louis at that time, it just haunted, it did, it haunted you, it was terrifying. And she was just, you know, four houses away from getting home off that school bus. All around St. Louis, kids and adults start hearing about the little girl. But Angie seems to have vanished. The news spreads quickly and police don't waste any time. They hit the streets talking to neighbors. 
Hi, Eileen. Uh -huh. I'm Detective Dinter with the Major Case Squad. Do uh -huh. you have a few minutes where we can come in and talk to you? Yeah, I guess. Okay, thanks. Basically, it was uh, take the lead, write it down, uh, callback number, you know, if you could get it, and uh, following up on them. But there are no sightings. No one seems to know anything. Parents around St. Louis are understandably alarmed. And in Angie's neighborhood, you know, it's more like panic. I think the most striking thing as I was reporting this story was to learn just how gripped, just how, you know, freaked out, scared the whole St. Louis region was when this happened. You know, she was, any, any missing child is a terrible situation. I think this one people could relate to because she was so innocently walking home from her school bus stop. I mean, how many kids do that every single day? And she went missing from the bus stop. So people were, you know, I don't think it's too strong to say people were in a little bit of a panic. We stay together. We're a closer-knit family now. We, I make sure I'm holding the baby's hand all the time, and he's four. And we're just... We're saddened by it, extremely saddened. So theories start popping up and tips are pouring in. Most, if not all, are a waste of time. Bob Schrader was the St. Anne County Police Chief at the time. He was 37 years old when he got the call about a missing girl. You just wouldn't believe um, the amount of people that's called in and said, this is my ex-husband, um, he looks like this, I know he's capable of this. Suspicions were that high. I mean, people were calling in to report someone that they thought might be capable of kidnapping Angie, based on nothing other than suspicion. How could a little girl just vanish a few houses away from her own front door? How could no one see her? What happened to Angie after she got off that bus? Parents are on edge and police don't seem to have anything to go on. There are reports of a man driving in Angie's neighborhood before and after her disappearance. A sketch is drawn up and handed out. High school student is questioned and then released. It's agony not knowing for Angie's friends, for her family, for her stepfather. But then, nine days after Angie disappeared, the news comes in, and it's not the news that anyone wants to hear. It was cold, cloudy, just a dreary day. Lieutenant Ed Copeland was one of the first on the scene when a pair of deer hunters called police after they spot a body. I saw a, uh, a young child's body laying in the woods. It was very shocking, yes. I pretty, uh, I pretty much knew who it was. She was taken in there alive and tied to a tree, mostly naked. They found her tied to a tree. She still had the duct tape across her eyes and her mouth. Dr. Mary Case was the county medical examiner at the time. She had no clothing on her body. She had been uh, kind of tied to a tree. She had very wide duct tape that went around her head that covered up her mouth except her nose was exposed. And under that duct tape, there was a pair of panties kind of over her mouth. I'm sure that that whole experience was a horrifying experience. She's taken out, you know, and hooked up to a tree and, and has no clothing. It's very cold, and, and she can't see what's going on. So, yes, of course she was suffering. When they did find her nine days later, and all of the things that came with that discovery. It was just so hor horrible, so you know, unspeakable, that it was a worst nightmare come true. You know, every parent's worst nightmare, to use a cliche, was actually happening right here in front of everyone. A nine-year-old girl tied to a tree, naked and left to die in the snow. It's horrifying, 
and no one can believe that a little girl could be snatched off the street in broad daylight, so close to home and safety. Police are tight-lipped about the condition of Angie's body. Again, we are being protective of uh, the mode of death and what we found at the crime scene right now. We're not releasing any details of the actual method and mode of that, but we believe she did expire at the, at the location she was found. It's clear she'd been tortured before she died. The cause of death is being left out to die in the cold. The news hits St. Louis residents like a ton of bricks. The Thanksgiving holiday that year is shattered by the discovery. Angie's family and friends grapple with the reality of never seeing the nine-year-old alive again. Her body is found in a rural section of St. Charles County, in an area called the Bush Wildlife Area. Police try reaching out to anyone who might have seen something. It is here the body of nine-year-old Angie Hausman was discovered last Saturday. Today, the Major K-Squad released this aerial photograph, hoping to jog someone's memory. The crime scene is just south of Highway 4061 and west of 94, just off of Miller School Road. You have the teenage population that uses that road for uh, partying or, or necking or whatever reasons they might choose to be there. But it's also an area that's open to bow hunting. Um, and we're hoping that some person or persons may have observed something that would be beneficial to it. And we would certainly like for them to call us. As the news of Angie's torture and murder spreads, a suspect is brought in for questioning someone tied to other child crimes in the area. Investigators are also checking to see if the same suspect was involved in another attempted abduction of a student on Utah between Oak Hill and Roger Lane. St. Louis police released the suspect because of lack of evidence, but not before photographing and identifying him. The major case squad is checking to see if there's a link between yesterday's incidents and the Hausman murder, a case that is taking its toll on everyone close to it. We don't hear about any further connection between that suspect and Angie Hausman. Close to 150 pieces of evidence are gathered from the crime scene and brought back to police headquarters, tested and then stored in evidence boxes. Gaffer tape that was used to tape the little girl's mouth shut, a beer bottle left at the scene. Everything is dusted for fingerprints. One fingerprint in particular becomes a key piece of evidence. It's documented. It's uh, compared to everybody that we come into contact with. Counselors are brought into Angie's elementary school to talk to friends and classmates. Families stay close and parents keep a close eye on their kids. Angie's body has been found, but a killer, someone capable of tying up and torturing a nine-year-old child, is still on the loose. Eventually, memorials take place. Speeches are made and music is played. Alongside tears and memories, there's a lot of anger and rage. She was sweet and innocent, horrible. I don't know how many times I, I come home and I lay in bed and I stare at the ceiling and I'm talking to myself and my wife nudges me, go to sleep, you know, you're not going to solve it tonight. St. Anne County Police Chief Bob Schrader would have many of those nights as the years went by. The FBI, the major squad case, and detectives across multiple departments are called in to help Schrader with the investigation. Leads continue to come in, new tips, but the results are always the same, more dead ends. Five years and then a decade. For the first time, evidence is tested for DNA in 2003 when the technology has finally gotten to the point where they might get a hit. But again, nothing. In 2013, 20 years after Angie's disappearance, Bob Schrader finally retires as police chief. And when I left office, I asked Aaron Jimenez to please, please keep looking into this case uh, because we need 
closure. Angie's mother, Diane, passed away in 2016, never knowing what happened to her daughter. Almost 25 years after she's killed, closure and justice for Angie Hausman seems to slip further and further away. Angie's stepfather, Ron Bone. It's gone too long. They need to solve it, get it, you know, have Angie resting in, in her peace instead of where she's at. I mean, she's not actually resting peacefully right now, I don't think. Was the person responsible for ending Angie's life still living in the neighborhood? Is he still alive? Eventually, reward money is offered. Investigators say there's now a $250,000 reward for information in the case, that money put up by an anonymous donor. Over the years, a lot of people have come forward to help find justice for Angie. Friends who can't forget her smile, parents who think of their own kids when they think of Angie. Trisha Trout is one of those parents still fighting for her. I feel 25 years is just way too long for this little girl to receive justice. She died in a horrific manner. She deserves justice, and that's why I do this. She's able to bring in an outside expert to look at the evidence. We have Cece Moore, who is willing to help for free. Cece Moore is a genetic genealogist. I suspect we will be able to put dozens of cold cases to rest. But Cece Moore isn't the only one thinking about DNA leading to a suspect. Of course, initially when Angie's body was found, DNA testing wasn't even close to where it is today. So over time, what was left at the scene, some shreds of Angie's clothing, were retested. In the process, still ongoing, uh, of DNA testing some of those items of evidence in hopes that we can find something uh, that prior testing wouldn't have shown. The advancements in DNA technology are staggering compared to what we had in its initial stages. The problem is, as time goes by, DNA can wear off, gradually disappear. More testing on the same piece of evidence can further reduce the amount of DNA that's left there in the first place. So you don't want to test over and over again. In the case of Angie Hausman, there's a piece of clothing trim from Angie's underwear that hadn't been tested even after 25 years. So almost three decades after Angie Hausman got off that school bus and started her walk home, police are still hoping to find the break they need to solve her case, to find a killer. It turns out that small shred of fabric would give police their first break in the case, their first break in decades. Investigators say prior to 2017, the dye in Angie's clothes would have kept them from finding consistent and conclusive DNA results. So after more than 25 years without answers, they say the waiting actually helped. That was a blessing in disguise. Had we tested this particular item any sooner than we did, there's a very good chance that nothing would have come about. And then just like that, after all that time, all those years, the news hits. Near the spot where one of the pieces had been torn, Bryant found DNA consistent with a mixture of two individuals, the victim, Angie Hausman, and an individual by the name of Earl Webster Cox. Now to a breaking news update. A 25-year-old cold case may be solved as investigators charge a man with the murder of Angie Hausman. Today, my office has charged Earl W. Cox with murder in the first degree, kidnapping in the first degree, and sodomy. This case, uh, it's, it's about much, much more than just uh, the, the DNA analysis, uh, but in particular, the, the finding that was the linchpin for us was good science, good lab work, and just good luck. When you hear the prosecutor talk about the details that they're talking a little more about now than they did back when they were first trying to keep certain things under wraps to preserve their investigation, 
you know, when they when they talk about the fact that they believe she was left in that in that forest alive uh, to suffer intentionally after what they say had been done to her, I think you know it's pretty obvious why this why this upset a lot of people. Earl Cox wasn't hard to find. In fact, he had a long rap sheet. More charges related to sex crimes against minors, and he'd been behind bars since 2003. Multiple sources close to the investigation tell us the man suspected in Angie Houseman's murder is a 61-year-old veteran who's currently an inmate in a North Carolina prison. Uh, he's there as a result of a civil commitment proceeding that came after a sentence he served in a child pornography ring. The suspect was born and raised in St. Louis. He was court-martialed in 1980 for sex offenses involving children while stationed in Germany. He was again charged with sexually abusing a child in 1989. He was released and back on the streets in St. Louis in 1992, months before Angie Hausman was murdered. He also lived less than three blocks from Angie's home at the time of the murder. He moved to Colorado where in 2003, he was caught with thousands of images of child pornography. At that time, he was also charged with trying to entice a minor across state lines. Cox is in fact designated a sexually dangerous person. It's a ruling he's fighting. He says he's actually too sick to reoffend. And just as he's charged in Angie's death, more charges are filed against him. Prosecutors say Earl Cox molested another young girl years earlier, sometime between 1987 and 1991. All the pieces of the puzzle seem to be fitting together. He deserves the death penalty, and he deserves it tomorrow. He doesn't deserve to live what he did to that little girl. And this is an ongoing investigation. If more um, evidence or victims are discovered, then we will aggressively prosecute. In the end, like so many cold cases that are eventually solved, there's the satisfaction of knowing that a killer is finally behind bars. Another cold case solved by science. But Angie is forever gone, her smile fading from the headlines and from memories of those that knew her. It's, uh, it's been probably the toughest case that I've had to deal with since I've taken office. Uh, and we've had some tough ones, there's no doubt about that. So Jessica, it's just a really heartbreaking story that, as we point out, ends with charges being filed, but it's tough to wrap your mind around what Cox may have been capable of doing if, in fact, he is the one who did it. Absolutely. Um, But I understand that early on there were not a lot of details about what police found in the woods when they found her body. Was, Was that just something to protect the investigation, you think? Well, I think at the time, back in 1983, when this happened, uh, there was another aspect to this case. There was a girl who was killed, uh, murdered, around a month after Angie was found, and she was found in St. Louis. Uh, So fear of a serial killer just kept spiking. Uh, Now, a suspect was arrested and convicted of that crime, so that might have dissipated a bit. But I, I think there was certainly the need to protect the investigation. Then this other case happened. And, you know, to some extent, perhaps investigators were keeping some of the, uh, the harsher details of, of what they found uh, when they came upon that crime scene private. There are indications that she struggled extensively um, and, and was not able to, to escape that, that scene, of course. And there's still talk of possible other suspects, right? Well, 
We hear the St. Charles County prosecuting attorney, Tim Lomar, there announcing and talking about the charges in our episode, and he makes it clear they haven't ruled out another suspect or involvement from someone else. So the investigation is open. And we should also mention that a picture of Cox taken around the time that Angie disappeared in 1993 has been released, and the public is urged to call in if they recall seeing him in the area at that time. So, you know, police are still trying to determine whether he acted alone, where Angie was for those nine days, if there are other crimes tied to him in the area. So how did Earl Cox not get on the radar of law enforcement back when this happened? I mean, he had already been arrested in the area for crimes against children and before he went on to be involved in a child pornography ring, right? Well, there was another case in the St. Louis area and he was arrested. The charges, as I understand, were were dropped. And this is decades ago, and there were certainly databases that didn't exist at the time, uh, sex offender registries, all those kinds of things that we have in place now that could have put Earl Cox on the radar almost in a matter of days, potentially, with a crime like this. It just wasn't there yet. Um, So I think detectives look back on it now, and, and it's tough to think about the fact that Cox had been living, operating in the area, and that he was able to to escape at the time. You know, they, they did round up or they did talk to known sex offenders in the area. Uh, one detective has commented that he, he was disturbed by how many there were. And the ones they knew of, they, they talked to, they interviewed people. But, of course, no one was found. So, Will, what can you tell me about the civil commitment status that was keeping Cox in jail prior to these charges? Well, so when Cox, his, his last confinement, which ended uh, in 2011, what had to do with this international online child pornography ring um, when he was arrested for this back and convicted in 2003, uh, they found 45,000 images of child pornography from his computer and discovered that he was part of a uh, child pornography ring known as the Shadows Brotherhood. Uh, this led to about 60 people being arrested around the world in 11 countries. So when it came time for him to finish his time in jail in 2011, uh, they decided that he would remain in federal prison under something called a civil commitment. This just means that the government can keep him incarcerated if they think he's likely to reoffend. As I mentioned, Cox has tried to fight this. He's appealed it. He says he's too sick to reoffend these days. Uh, but now he's being moved to, you know, he's been moved to Missouri to face these new charges in this case, the Angie Hausman case. So the bottom line here, Jessica, is that there could be more news coming from St. Louis on the story. We will, of course, keep our listeners updated. Jessica, good luck to you out there in Kentucky. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Will. Appreciate it. We'll talk to you then. Thanks to all of you for listening. And special thanks this week to KSDK in St. Louis and Casey Nolan there reporting for us. True Crime Chronicles is a Vault Studios production. You can tell your friends to listen, subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and all major listening apps.